This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest is joining us remotely from Southern California, uh, an old friend who I've uh, seen a number of times but didn't see over the past year very much because we haven't been going to festivals. Um, director of Brewing for Radiant Brewing in uh, Anaheim, California, Andrew Bell. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having me. You're probably better known to most folks that are listening as innovation manager for the brewery in Placentia, California, known for big beers and, and crazy beers like Black Tuesday and others um, and have a long history of, of brewing for the brewery and uh, going out mm -hmm. to you know beer festivals and the like. Um, but you know now you're in a new role for Radiant as director of brewing, um, creating a new identity for this brewery and uh, back with some old, uh, old friends from the Southern California from uh, yeah, brewing scene. Um, about to open and sell your first beers under the new Radiant brand. Yeah, Wednesday, which wow. I mean, yeah, tomorrow. So it's uh, it's a fun little process that kind of happened very quickly. But um, yeah, yeah, we're ready. Well, I'm I look forward to delving into uh, these questions of developing a new brewery identity, especially for someone who's brewed within a program that's uh, you know uh, so such a storied program of uh, kind of staking out an uh, area of identity in a in a brewing market of uh, Anaheim and Southern California, Orange County, LA Metro, um, you know, that now has a lot of high performing breweries. Um, can't wait to talk about uh, adding things into beers because uh, certainly that uh, is, you know, deep in your past. Uh, and I imagine we'll talk about some high gravity brewing too, before we're done. But first is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. G and D chillers has set the standard on quality service, reliability, and dedication to their customers craft new this year redundancy meets efficiency gnd's micro channel condensers are built with an all aluminum construction which eliminates galvanic corrosion using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer brazed connections translates to a lower gwp and less opportunity for leaks call gnd chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com also, this episode is brought to you by Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale Malt is the workhorse of many a brewery and is at home in a variety of beer styles. Crisp sources the lowest nitrogen spring barley from farmers in Fife up to Moray. During malting, high cast moistures and a balance of optimal germination time and temperature results in an even well-modified malt with a rich color and balanced sweet malt flavor, ideally suited to ale brewing. Visit bsgcraftbrewing.com for more information on crisp Scottish pale ale malt or call 1-800-374-2739. So Andrew, let's uh, let's talk about Radiant, and then let's also uh, kind of backtrack a little bit and, and talk to me about your history through craft beer. Um, where, how, what led you to this point right now, launching now a new brewery, Radiant, and uh, what are some of those key moments for your your own personal craft beer history? Yeah, so Radiant um, Radiant is a obviously a new brewery that I founded with two other people who I used to work with when I worked at the brewery, uh, Jonas Nomura and Cambria. Um, so I guess taking a step back, um, 
I started working in the brewery in early, in early to mid 2012. Um, I had been in investment banking before, um, out of college and uh man there's so really... many ex-brewers yeah. like uh doug constantine in investment banking before uh going to and working at the brewery we were what is it same... about the brewery and investment bankers yeah well doug and i actually both worked for bear stearns oh okay uh, which is interesting and um yeah so it, obviously 2012 by 2012, Bear Stearns had no longer existed. So right. I've been homebrewing since uh, before I was legally able to drink beer um, and started homebrewing a bit more regularly. Um, entered entered a couple pro-am competitions. One got to brew up at uh, Bison Brewing in Berkeley and was kind of just figuring like, you know, maybe, maybe I should try out this brewing thing instead of trying to get a job back in a struggling financial industry. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd known the people at the brewery since 2008, uh, Patrick and Tyler. Um, and I saw a entry level packaging job and sent him my resume and I caught a phone call pretty shortly after from Tyler being like, you know, you're you might be overqualified for this you do know this is like a ten dollar an hour like packaging <laughs> position i'm like yeah he's like all right cool we'll come in meet some people and if you have a clean like background check you you can start you know working on the maheen bottling line and washing kegs and did that for a couple months and then moved over a little bit into the wood cellar and then cellar work and then overnight and brewing and brewing trainer and then in 2014 became the experimental brewer. We had this little, um, little three barrel pilot system, a little three barrel premiere. Um, and at the time we had five fermenters and that kind of quickly grew. And by the time I left, there were 14 three barrel pilot fermenters that I was running. Um, but yeah, when I got promoted to that experimental brewer role, it was basically working with Patrick and Tyler to come up with with a lot of the concepts and then come up with all the recipes um, and did that for a while. And then that role kind of shifted into a role called innovation managers, sort of the same thing, but I needed some people under me. So since yeah, 2014 making on average, the brewery was on average making about 150 different bottled and canned beers per year. And then the pilot system was producing another somewhere between 120 and 160 just for draft of the tasting room and festivals. And so it got pretty used to making about just short of 300 new beers a year since from 2014 to (laughs) 2020. Um, including a lot of the beers that are at least the recipes we'll see. Um, I, I trust the production team over the brewery to execute, but I wrote a lot of recipes for them for the next year, whether they decide to use them or not, they're pretty set up for their crazy release schedule next year. <laughs> it's, it's a fun, it's a fun ride. Um, right, but right. yeah, but being in that position sort of like the skunk works of the brewery, um, getting to, you know, pretty much try anything out, having 14 single brew length fermenters to brew into just for our pilot system, uh, allowed for a lot of experimentation. So if there's we're anything to put into close. a beer, you probably yeah. put it into a beer because yeah, producing there's that many a different, uh, yeah. There's very few things that we can legally put into beer that we haven't used. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. 
Um, so, yeah, it's fun. So, you know, now under, certainly under the, the radiant guys, you are uh, taking a different approach and, and, and I would guess in a lot of ways having to um, both experiment, but also think about how to build um, mainstays for a new brewery. Talk to me about that kind of, uh, you know, new challenge, you know, under that kind of guise of the brewery and, and Placentia, you know, innovation was what the brand was built around. They were built around mm-hmm. pushing boundaries. They were built around extreme beers. It was, um, you know, very much, uh, you know, pushing a quasi-Belgian idea at the first, which then became a lot of, you know, ways to add different ingredients to to big stouts, high-gravity beers, barley wines, um, and also then pushing on that, you know, those same kinds of approaches to sour beers and whatnot. Uh, everything was flavor-forward. Everything was generally in-your-face and intense Mm-hmm. Now launching another brewery brand, um, not very far geographically. Um, Anaheim's, you know, relatively close to the same area. You know, so serving potentially serving some of the similar customers in that kind of environment, creating a new idea for a brewery that will somehow stand on its own um, and encapsulate a different identity has to be a brand new challenge for you. Yeah, it's a new challenge, and I, I kind of forgot to mention how how I met my uh, my co-founders here at Radiant. Um, so, uh, like I said, I worked at the brewery from 2012 until 2020 um, as sort of the innovation creation of beer recipes. Uh, Jonas was at the brewery for better part of 10 years uh, with me as well, doing mostly director of operations and just has a pretty broad skill set as sort of brand creation and HR and financial stuff and basically making sure that a the brewery is any brewery is a functioning business and then Cambria um, worked with us for I don't know probably like six or seven years of the brewery before moving on to Figaro Mountain and is just a marketing genius and branding genius uh, but getting back to what you were saying um All how three do you, how, of you are trying to now you know yeah, create a unique identity from radiant or for radiant you know coming exactly. from a similar from similar backgrounds yeah so i mean it's a challenge on you know all three aspects production operations and marketing to try and create a new voice and we're using obviously our background and a lot of the stuff we learned and did at the brewery to sort of inform that voice, but we're definitely not trying to be the brewery 2.0. Um, they're doing a decent amount, a decent job at being the brewery 1.0. So we're, sure. we're, we're trying to create our own, our own vision, be it from our marketing message or how we, how the experience is or will be at the tasting rooms and definitely from the liquid perspective. Um, just having worked at the brewery for so long and developing so many of their beers, there's definitely a brewery style Um, and I was definitely going for, you know, trying to keep all the beers within that style. So people knew what to expect with radiant. It's a blank slate, so to speak. Um, so creating that, that new sort of flavor profile of what, what consumers can expect from us. We're again, not trying to make brewery beers here. So with the brewery, I'm, I'm curious about that. What, like, you know, you say there's a brewery style, you know, mentally for you from a brewing perspective, what are those rails, you know, like what, um, what space, you know, would you define that as? 
So there, there's, it kind of depends stylistically on what category of beer, but I would say as far as like, let's just use stouts, for example. Yeah. Um, they're, they're very different than most other brewery stouts, especially the big ones. Um, and just from the basic way they're designed, they're usually attenuated quite a bit more than mm. other breweries beers, even if they aren't perceived as such. Yeah. Um, and then as far as like the, for the brewery, we were mostly f- focused around flavor concepts. We wouldn't just throw these, r- whatever random adjuncts or additions into tanks. It always, always had to be thought out and it always had to be, you know, pretty extreme from a flavor perspective. You weren't really hinting at something you were, you were doing it, you were making it. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you would make a, you make like an oatmeal cookie beer and these days people would throw a bunch of oatmeal cookies in the beer. Instead we would make, we would use ingredients that are in oatmeal cookies and try and get very specifically to that flavor profile. So it wasn't that, just about the, sense. no, you know, there are those Instagrammable moments of mm-hmm. brewers throwing things into a beer and yeah. to some degree that power of suggestion works, you know, to create mm-hmm. some perception of that with a end drinker. But I think what you're saying is that you are more focused on how to exactly make it taste like that thing. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it would be a conceptualized flavor. It wouldn't be just like, oh, I like coconut. I like chocolate hazelnut let's just throw that in all three into a beer it'd be like all right well let's think about this we want to use chocolate and coconut in a beer what else kind of goes with that flavor concept oh maybe do like an almond joy so throw some almonds in there with it you need a little bit vanilla to round it out like it, it would so never just be yeah look- it was yeah we were looking we were very influenced by food by cocktail culture by anything around us but it was always like a defined flavor profile it's interesting in that regard then because you weren't just construct like as i'm i'm thinking about this you know we've got uh, you know randy mosher writing a, a story for our next issue and we were talking about flavoring and hard seltzer and got down went down that whole rabbit hole of flavor houses and uh you know he's basically diving incredibly deep into you know synthetic flavor creation mm-hmm. and the way that the psychology of flavor uh, you know actually builds in our brains based on these kinds of perceptions um but there's a lot of that going on um you know what you're talking about here that the way that these flavors are constructed in beers is more complex than just you know throwing in the things that are named on an ingredient list yeah um talk to me a little bit about how you break down something like an oatmeal cookie or another one of these kinds of flavor, uh, you know, approaches and then, you know, construct a flavor idea of that out of Mm -hmm. ingredients that are available to you on the brewing side. Yeah. I mean, we did do some oatmeal cookie beers at the brewery and oatmeal raisin cookies. And when I think about it, I think from a malt perspective, like what sort of character you can build up and then you get that, you get those little nuances and then to actually more define the flavors like, all right, oatmeal raisin cookie, you have to have a little bit of cinnamon in there. Cause that gives you this baked element. You don't want it to the point where it's like, wow, there's cinnamon. It needs to be sort of a background hint and then raisins figuring out what sort of raisins are you going to be using some sort of just ground up raisin paste? Are you just going to soak the beer in, in raisins? Are you going to use some sort of product that's been concentrated a bit like a, higher higher sugar content to get more of that intensity again within balance and then huh so oatmeal raisin cookie most of 
most of the flavor you're getting from it is not necessarily the baked component of the cinnamon or the raisins. So what can we do to get more of a toasted, you know, oatmeal cookie experience? Huh, let's dry hop it with granola. Just plain honey granola. And hmm. yeah, granola in small amounts sure, sure tastes and smells <laughs> like an oatmeal cookie. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there, there's there's fun things like that. I mean, I don't know. I get texts from people all the time. And it's like, yeah, I'm sure you've used this ingredient, right? Yep. What's <laughs> what's what's the best way to do it? And right. what would your rough dosage rate? It's like, cool. Yeah, I know how much, how many pounds of pecans to dry hop this or dry nut this beer with, whatever you want to call it. Dry nut. Oh, that's a terrible yeah. term for it. Yep. But, uh, yes, it is. Well, it's a horrible term. Let's talk about, um, and we'll get back to the subject of, of forming an idea identity for radiant, but I think this is really interesting one to talk about some of those are, um, what are some of the more, uh, difficult or interesting solutions in terms of, uh, achieving specific, you know, food like flavors, um, that you've stumbled upon or developed, I shouldn't say stumbled upon, I should say iterated upon, worked at and discovered through experimentation, um, you know, that might seem counterintuitive to people or are interesting kinds of solutions. There's, there's so many things that we've just done over the years, like using certain fruits to sort of accentuate certain things. Um, trying to think of a good example. Uh, I mean, even just like, certain nuances like if you want something say you're using a bunch of coconut if you want like the nuance and this is probably a more obvious thing than what you're looking for out of someone who who innovated the brewery but if you're using coconut dosage rate dependent like if you're trying to get bright flavors obviously using the fresher raw but toasted even if you're using a lot can sometimes lead to other flavors that aren't necessarily connected with the coconut like huh. bringing out sort of like caramel notes or toffee or just inherent sweetness you lose some of that freshness but you can add it at small amounts and sort of build these other flavors up that aren't coconut hmm. shall we say so getting some more of that toasted caramel character you can get that by just using coconut um sure there's some other things but I'm interesting kind of liking, yeah. i'll give you a second to think about that and uh uh in the meantime the world of craft beer is a different place now margins are more important than ever so why not lower your ingredient cost craft juice concentrates from old orchard are the cost effective solution for your fruit forward needs old orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brand so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program a little concentrate goes a long way and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees to start increasing your margins now head on over to www oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million taproom visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on brewerydb.com. In early 2021, Brewery DB will unveil an all new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail to take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of brewery db and to increase your taproom traffic visit marketmybrewery.com that's marketmybrewery.com it's easy and it's free 
So let's Andrew, let's get back to yeah. crazy so, ingredients so, and subject. Yeah, uh, sort sort of yeah. As far as like other tips and tricks, like I mean, using spices are either overutilized or underutilized by a lot of breweries and you know adding something if you're trying to get a certain flavor concept adding a hair of cinnamon or a little bit of nutmeg not to the point where you can you know you taste the beer and you can say oh there's cinnamon in this oh there's nutmeg just enough to like accentuate it to build that sort of flavor on your palate without actually tasting that specific spice there's definitely areas where you can create sort of an emotional connection in someone's palate based off using these spices at really low levels. And then obviously the obvious one put vanilla in everything and people <laughs> <Yeah>. like it. <laughs> it was funny because, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago on the podcast, I talked to Brett Coleman Baker from Urban Artifact. And of course he says mm -hmm. the exact same thing. They, you know, for fruit, put vanilla in everything. Um, yep. and they, he said, you know, he was mentioning talking about sub threshold. That was the same kind of thing mm -hmm. that, uh, sometimes it is absolutely minute amounts, um, mm -hmm. amounts that might not look like they would accomplish anything on an ingredient sheet that can help do that. It's interesting that you find the, the same thing with, uh, you know, spices like cinnamon and nutmeg that just in very yeah. small trace amounts sub threshold amounts that they, uh, they might achieve a, a way of bringing something mm -hmm. else into focus. Yeah. Nutmeg's nutmeg's a powerful powerful tool as is cinnamon i mean cinnamon dosage rates we were doing everything it depends on what you're trying to get but as low as like three quarters of an ounce per barrel up to something like horchata which was over 4.25 ounces per barrel of cinnamon um or when we did the beer with kyle at horace like the curiosity beer that beer has a boatload of cinnamon in it as well but it's kind of balanced by the sweetness and the dolce de leche in there and kind of getting that churro concept. Um, but yeah, no cinnamon, cinnamon, cinnamon at low levels can give you just this perception of like a baked good. Um, but once you taste it, like as cinnamon, it can obviously get very, very intense. It can add bitterness. So what, to, uh, was there an careful. ingredient? Yeah. Was there an ingredient that you found posed the most problems for you what were some of the most difficult problems where that you just kept banging your head on the on the on the tank trying to to figure out the the proper solution for it um i guess the problems the problems weren't really let me put it this way with our little three barrel pilot system both from a labor perspective um and just a having to be only a draft product for the most part coming off our pilot system didn't really need to worry so much about um, how much labor went into it. Um, so we could, we could, what I'm getting at is we could, the stakes were low any, and you could fix your problem. Yeah. We, we could throw anything in the pilot system. And if we lost a lot of beer in the process, who cares? The problem is when you go to scale something. And so it really wasn't as much me banging my head against the wall as it was the people who I passed off these projects to <laughs> when, when it's like, okay, yeah, you're going to add how much, how much of this to a three barrel tank. And then that's scaling up into a 30 or 60 or plus barrel tank. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah, cool. I'm going to throw 2,200 pounds of pistachios into that tank. Okay. <laughs> it's like, oh Yeah. And how are you going to get the most flavor out of it? Well, found out very quickly that for us, at least at the brewery, recirculating nuts 
definitely helps with oil extraction. I mean, we did this beer back in the day for Firestone Invitational that I think for a single bourbon barrel had, I want to say it had like $700 worth of pistachios in it, oh, another geez. like $150 worth of vanilla. And this was back in the day when vanilla was pretty cheap. And it's just like, yeah, there's what, like 30 or 40 pounds of pistachios in here and you can barely taste it. And it's like, try to redo that again and did it in a tank and recirculate it. And it's like, oh, there's, there's where those hundreds of dollars of nuts came in. And that was for a single barrel too, but um, I don't know where I was going. Yeah, that's that. like what a, ba- a one yeah. one point five barrels of beer, you know, beer mm-hmm. barrels out of a your one bourbon barrel, you know. So exactly, and then not not to mention the absorption of the nuts. But yeah, no, I think the biggest challenges were all, always scaling and being able to get mitigate losses to an extent to have enough beer to package. But yeah, putting thousands and thousands of pounds of these things into tanks and then trying to separate off them to get a somewhat at least for the brewery we're not ones who really like things floating in our package beer we also right. carbonate at I, sh- I keep saying we because i've worked there so long but <laughs> yeah. you, the the brewery definitely believed like in in carbonating our all of our products pretty high so even the right. stouts are like two four two five volume in bright um in order to be able to get foam to be able to either cap or put the lid application on the foam to keep DOs low. So can't have stuff floating around in it. Cause if it is, it causes nucleation points and gushing right. when you're at carbonating to those volumes. So yeah, the big, the big problems were scaling beers and then separating them from ingredients. Um, that, that was always, always a problem trying to figure out that game plan with myself and the other, you know, production managers sure sure so you mentioned recirculating are you um then bagging and are the, are the production folks bagging putting into the large tank or are you recircling through a dosing tank you know what does so, that general process look like at a production scale so it to an extent it depends on tank availability in the tank farm um but oftentimes and it also depends on the actual ingredient yield wise uh but definitely recirculating especially nuts helps get the flavor we were doing most of that in tank sometime depending on how it's getting separated out um sometimes bagged sometimes not you get more bang for your buck when the ingredients not bagged right but obviously you can get <laughs> your production loss. folks do not want to have to clean that out after yeah the i mean i we had a we had a time when i was at the brewery about nine ten months ago where we our centrifuge almost caught on fire trying to separate a peanut flour out of a beer. And then I've, I've heard that we, we never really sent, um, we never sent cacao nibs through a centrifuge, but I definitely heard of another brewery doing that and pretty much grenading their centrifuge. Yikes. Yeah. All forms of, yeah. Thing, all, yeah. all manners of thing. Yeah, like trying to get another problem ingredient. Ingredient was banana puree. Trying to get that out of suspension. Yeah, on a scale and not lose half the beer. Yeah, I don't know why, be it viscosity or what, but banana puree I remember being problematic. 
It's interesting. Let's talk about nuts for a little more, a little, little longer. You know, obviously mm-hmm. the high oil content of nuts, you know, creates its own, mm-hmm. you know, fun problems for brewers. But, um, you know, do you have a, did you have a consistent way of preparing nuts? Um, you know, toasting, chopping, shaving, grinding, you know, what, uh, what does that nut process generally look like? Yeah. Uh, for us, it, again, slightly dependent on the nut variety, but for the most part, the best way for us to get flavor out of the nuts was to have the nuts roasted at some point, be it in-house or from the supplier. And then also having it in as close to meal meal form as possible. So finely ground um, that, I mean, it gets you the most extract out of it. Right. Um, that said, sometimes again, harder to separate from, separate the beer from the nut sure you definitely get the most the most flavor if you have the most surface area of beer to nut so yeah so a very fine grind then yeah basically yeah very fine grind and um recirculating it getting all the oils out of the nuts um again for the most part depending on the flavor profile you want to go for roasted roasting the nuts either in-house or buying them roasted definitely helps is there a time component to this you know in terms of you know if they if you roast them and then let them sit for too long that um you know especially if you've pulled oil out of them that uh things start to spoil or go weird yeah i mean definitely getting getting them once you've roasted them getting them in quicker into the beer so there's less chance of things going rancid that definitely helps um yeah i mean you want to I mean, the same's true. I think with most food, you want to use the freshest ingredients right. you can for the most part. So, and when it, and processing right before adding, yeah. when possible. Um, in terms of uh, sanitizing, you know, when you start adding these ingredients into a you know a beer kind of environment, um, you know, keeping uh, you know these ingredients clean so that they're not introducing uh, you know new yeast or bacteria its own particular challenge is uh did you all have any novel and legal ways of uh of accomplishing that uh yeah a flash pasteurizer oh okay yeah which is something i'm kind of um i'm kind of figuring out in my head here at radiant um because two of our first eight batches are going to bourbon barrels for a while some very big although very different from the brewery stouts and very happy with the burn barrels we got in. But my sort of thought process and what I've told my partners is that I'm intending if we're putting ingredients adjuncts into those barrels, they're going to be draft only products um, until we can create the business plan to get some sort of pasteurizer. Um, I definitely worked at the brewery through a couple of years where before we had the pasteurizer, where there were some infection issues and I, I don't want to have to deal with that headache again. So uh, when we start doing some big uh, adjuncted stouts here at Radiant, it's definitely going to, they're definitely going to be draft only products for a while until we can get, um, get, get a pasteurizer. And that's what we're using at the brewery, like a a big flash pasteurizer. Um, definitely allows more creativity. I've talked to some friends in the brewing industry and they're, you know, they're putting these ingredients in and then, you know, praying that it doesn't, 
doesn't blow up or sour. Anyone all that's had to refund yeah. fifty or seventy thousand dollars worth of uh, product from uh, you know a barrel aged stout that they have had uh, get you know develop an infection or express right. itself in a bottle like nobody nobody yeah. I mean it seemed like that's a financial nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> it's I mean, so much more monumental. Let me put it this way: when we were making white chocolate uh, at the brewery, wheat wine with cacao and vanilla. Uh, we did have a year where some of the beer got infected um, and the volume of beer we did, if we had, I mean, the volume of beer that we had to destroy cost well, way more than the pasteurizer cost. Yeah. So if you can save one tank, I mean, there's your ROI right there. So, I mean, they're not, they're not, they're not cheap uses of equipment, but they, they do pay for themselves. And we've ran so many trials and, I mean, on a lot of the beers, especially, especially, I mean, so at the brewery, we pasteurize barrel aged beer that is sub 16% alcohol that has ingredients. That's kind of the go-to. Um, and above that, you think the alcohol is going to yeah, do its so, job? And- yeah. So no Black Tuesday treatments get pasteurized. But what I was kind of getting at is most of the beers that got pasteurized at the brewery, the, you know, beers with adjuncts and the 16, 16% alcohol and under, we ran a bunch of, you know, lab sensory triangle trials. And most of those beers were, you know, maltiness, maltiness is a key in most of those beers. And those beers, there was a preference for the beers that were pasteurized when run blind it seemed to both mellow the flavors and also increase sort of the toasted caramelized characters in those beers um so it it ended up being sort of sort of an improvement in a way um just from a flavor perspective when done blind there were a couple ingredients now that i think about it that we had issues where where the the pasteurizer would kind of flash off some of those flavors if they're super volatile. Um, in some beers, like it, it helps set vanilla and cinnamon, but we did this beer, uh, at one point that had time in it and the time was there before. And we ran through the pasteurizer and the time character was completely gone. Interesting. So that was a weird one. Yeah. Yeah. Are there, uh, you know, did you rerun at different temperatures to try to see if you could get it to work in a different way or, uh, <laughs> just took time uh, out of the descriptor for that beer and uh, uh, let it be. <laughs> no, we, we, I, I, if I remember correctly, we retreated it with time, oh, more yeah. time, and then reran it, noticed a similar issue, but got basically added enough time to where you could taste the time. But okay, it was frustrating not knowing how much of it would flash off, uh, when we ran it through, but yeah. Yep. Um, let's talk about some ingredients, you know, a little bit more because this is fascinating to me. And I think that, uh, again, you know, for somebody with uh, your level of experience using these things, it's, uh, it'd be a shame not to talk to you about it. Uh, but first, uh, ABS Commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts. As part of the ABS Commercial's ongoing give back campaign, they'll be giving away an ABS Keg Viking keg washer in June. 
So make sure to periodically check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out when the contest opens up and how you can enter to win a keg Viking. You know, so we, we talked about nuts. We talked about coconut and toasting. Um, we haven't talked much about fruit. Um, let's talk about some of the more interesting uh, fruits that you've played with. And, uh, you know, other I guess we did talk about banana a little bit and the real pain of, uh, of separating banana puree. Um, but but uh, let's talk about fruits and then, uh, you know, using fruits together with uh, spices to kind of heighten that kind of uh, sensory appeal. And also another thing to bring up is the different forms of a given fruit that you can use and how those give you different flavors. Um, Let's definitely talk about that. And banana is actually a great starting point. Um, We've used all sorts of bananas when I was at the brewery and they give different things. So we've used fresh bananas. We've used freeze dried bananas. We've used dehydrated bananas we've used banana puree we've used banana concentrate we've used um we've with fresh bananas we've done green like underripe bananas ones that we've put in the boiler room for several weeks not several weeks sorry over the weekend to to get them extra ripe um and they all have different flavors um when looking when we did a we did a banana bread beer a little while ago and for that using a freeze-dried banana powder got you that sort of cooked like banana bread warm moist character and putting a little walnut with that to kind of get the where do you get dried banana powder uh there's a couple there's a couple (laughs) of food service vendors that uh, that we've worked with they're Um, mainly catering to bakers i would assume yeah yeah and big uh, there's a lot of yeah it's it's mostly yeah big bakeries there's yeah. a lot of ice ice cream people oh okay that makes um, sense yeah and sometimes you get the sample of this ingredient it's like oh yeah this this will work great oh yeah what's your minimum order size oh yeah you need to order a shipping container of it it's like uh, not planning on <laughs> using that much right <laughs> you, you gave me this little like one pound sample and it's either one pound sample or a whole shipping container full of it. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, when working on that banana project, um, we sampled some banana concentrates and basically it's, you take banana juice and you cook it down until it's 70 bricks and normal bananas probably in the, depending on ripeness, probably in like a 15 brick range. So, you know, five, four or five, six times concentrate. So tasted this and like, well, this is definitely not going to work for the project we want to do right now, but oh my God, this tastes like a brulee banana. It tastes like caramelized banana. So we're definitely going to have to make a banana foster beer with this. Um, so kind of fun finding that out. Um, yeah. So, I mean, at the brewery, we didn't really discriminate on what sort of fruit product we'd use. We'd use the best one for that application from a flavor component. So sometimes that's fresh, sometimes that's puree, sometimes that's freeze dried, sometimes that's concentrate. The only thing that we didn't really do was extracts. Uh, just we're not as much as we can avoid extracts. Um, we did. Uh, and I don't, to my knowledge, we've never used an extract for a fruit flavor that I can think of. Um, but sometimes though yeah using a freeze-dried is the right answer using the fresh fruit is the right answer it really depends but my favorite fruits to work with when we worked on them at the brewery was all obviously 
grapes, wine grapes specifically, being in California, having access to sure. some incredible vineyards. And I think for several people at the brewery, like making beer wine hybrids is just such a passion project. And you get to pretend like you're a winemaker for a few weeks. Um, yeah, Why we is had, being a winemaker so much sexier than being a brewery, Andrew? Come on, I, man. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's sure fun. And I mean, we, we had some very basic, like more than basic. I mean, we had this little, um, little 10 hectoliter, three ton, uh, press, but yeah, gain to gain to experience like a different industry for, you know, a week or two is always fun. And then I just really liked like the flavors that we were, we were putting out and gain to work very closely with this agricultural product. I mean, obviously hops, we get to work with all the time, but uh, something special about that one time a year. And then, um, having, having some pretty, pretty good people on the team when we were at the brewery, um, Jeremy Grinke, who I'm pretty sure has been on your podcast. At some no, point. I've talked to him for some, for magazine stories oh, no. and, and know Jeremy well, but, uh, we should get him on the podcast here sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he has a background as a winemaker and then yeah. Patrick, Patrick Rue ended up, uh, loving loving wine so much that he became a winemaker so right patrick, he's, he's patrick's a up in, with his wife yeah patrick's up in napa running erosion right now so yeah yeah great but grapes are fun and especially being in california just there's there's so many great microclimates and abas around here that produce amazing fruit so being able to use those in these beer wine hybrids that that was that was fun and it, it felt like an event you know yeah. So. Let's talk about, um, you know, th thinking about those flavors and then, you know, what different, uh, wine grapes, you know, can kind of bring to the equation. Um, you know, you've done uh, now and let's try to talk about it out. You know, obviously there's a sour beer side of the equation, which, uh, you know, has its own kind of concerns, but you also did some, uh, wine grape clean beer, uh, you know, projects, which were rather interesting, you know, blends with Black Tuesday and, you know, and other types of things. Um, you know, talk to me about, uh, you know, how, um, you know, you go around selecting wine grapes uh, and then processing methods for those grapes in order to uh, to get flavors that work with some of these weirder, more extreme beers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, especially on the clean side, it's a bit different. Um, we started off. Uh, way back in the day with uh, a beer series called Winification, uh, which later moved to a series called Vindictive for fun, re fun legal reasons. Um, and then moving on to the Rutherford and Yaunt series, um, they're basically, we would, we would identify what sort of grapes we wanted to use. They're usually, we're, if we're doing a clean side, we were going to be mixing it at some point with stout. So we wanted bigger, bolder, um, bigger, bolder red wine grapes. Um, and the process was that we would at harvest time, we'd be ready. We would, uh, get in however many tons we were using that year. Um, we would usually do a partial crush and destem, put them into a tote and then put dry ice on them because as a brewery brewery, we were not allowed to ferment grapes by themselves. So we let them cold soak for several days. And then after, once we had gotten good color and tannic extraction, we would, well, we did it a couple different ways, depending on the year, either we would press off that juice and go into a fermenter with 50, 50 volumes of black Tuesday wort. Um, and 
grape must, um, and then let that ferment out and then go into punchins for a while. Uh, we've also done it where we've done the cold soak and then knocked out Black Tuesday on top of the grapes, let it go to a couple degrees above terminal gravity, press off into a fermenter, let it finish up, drop lees, and then go into French oak punchins for the most part, uh, which are insanely expensive, uh, and let it age for you know, 18, 24 months. Uh, but yeah, basically treat it, treat it like a wine for the most part. You know, in terms of your personal favorites, uh, are there any personal favorites on the grape side that you, um, you find yourself uh, going back towards because, uh, they continue to add interesting flavors that complement uh, those stouts? Yeah. I mean, my personal preference is more for Rhone variety grape, varietal grapes. So Syrah, Grenache, Mouvedre being the big ones, um, also like Burgundian grapes, but those are, those don't really, I mean, Pinot Noir, Gamay don't really stand up too well in big stouts mm. as far as I've found. Right. Um, being, being that Patrick, it's Patrick Ruse company, the brewery. Um, he's a very big Napa person, obviously living in Napa now. So he's always big into, you know, the more Bordeaux style grapes of, you know, to an extent Merlot and Cap Franc, but mostly Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and you want a very big, bold grape to go into these big, strong beers, uh, something that can, you know, stand up to being co-fermented with a stout, right? Um, which the base wort for Black Tuesday without the dextrose feeding, which we can get into later, it's about 26 and a half Play-Doh. So getting these very ripe grapes that are themselves almost 26, 27 bricks, um, you need, you need very expressive, strong, strongly flavored grapes. So my, my personal preference is more into like Syrah, um, but brewery had great success with Cabernet Sauvignon. You just mentioned high gravity brewing and let's definitely uh, pivot and talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, because... I, mean, I, could, I could, I could talk about wine all day. That's yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's something, that's something that we're hoping to get our type two license here at radiant to potentially make a little bit of wine this year. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it's in the plans. Okay. Okay. I got, well, I got to pretend I'm a winemaker again for a couple of days. You know, every, every winemaker wants to make beer and every brewer wants to make wine. Well, I shouldn't say yep. every, but, uh, you know, um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the grass is always greener, I guess. Um, when you on that subject of high gravity brewing though, uh, the brewery has, you know, relatively, um, singular process. I shouldn't say that, but you know, I would, uh, they are in that terms of brewing a, slightly uh you know lower gravity initial brew and then continue to feed fermentation to achieve that high you know high uh, gravity kind of finish um there are other brewers that brew that way but now you know there's also a lot of um uh, stylistically more brewers are also trying to brew bigger double triple mash beers no sparge first runnings um exceedingly long boils to you know kind of you know achieve that uh, kind of heft um and so you know the brewery's process kind of stands out relative to that um talk to me a little bit though about um you know brewing these like 15 plus percent beers um and how uh you know some of the steps that you all would take 
in order to get um, effective fermentations out of that um, and also kind of control some of the kind of tougher fermentation impacts of that kind of uh, constantly feeding of a fermentation. Yeah. So it's, it's a process that was developed. I mean, it's, it always is evolving, but the initial process of Black Tuesday was obviously started before, before I started at the brewery. Um, and it's something that Tyler back in the day used to be pretty open about. So um, basically it's all about yeast health and yeast management. Yeah, there uh, is an article back in a 2014 issue of Craft Beer and Brewing on this mm-hmm. very same subject. If people want to go back deep into our archives and, and delve into that and, uh, you know, but yes, like, yeah. we haven't really talked about it on the, on the podcast ever. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a fun process. And just to kind of start out, I mean, Black Tuesday is such a different, almost foreign beer compared to what, what stouts are, even when it was created, what stouts were then, what stouts are now. It's definitely, um, definitely quite different. So when you say that, what do you mean? How do you, how do you define uh, that? Just, just gravities in general. And I can get into that, but I mean, I've always found it funny that the brewery used to have this reputation for brewing really sweet under attenuated beers when the truth is it, it it was completely the other way around. So black Tuesday, most batches finish sub three Plato. Wow. Yeah. Versus most stouts today, like talking to some friends who are putting stouts into barrels that are 20 degrees Plato final right. gravity. So, um, yeah, but also being 19 or 20% alcohol, ethanol is a perceived sweet compound. So that's where a lot of people are getting that impression of sweetness and trying to find that balance. But as far as Black Tuesday and how it's made, you you want to keep the yeast ha- happy and able to ferment as much sugar as possible. So starting starting off the brew house, you know, 25 to 27, targeting like 26 and a half Play-Doh, pitching a lot of yeast 1.5 to 2 million cells per milliliter aerating appropriately. Are they public about the, the yeast that they use or, uh, uh public and that it's private. Yeah. And so it's, <laughs> so it is, I, I can tell you about, it. it's a Belgian diastatica strain. Um, oh, okay. That is proprietary to the brewery. Um, there's one other brewery that is able to really pull it, but it is not, is not a commonly it's not a sold yeast strain it has history as a it was banked by a home brewer in san diego in the mid 90s and it's a mutated uh dual type strain you so. brew stouts with a diastatic a belgian diastaticus strain yep well exactly. i shouldn't say you should say the brewery brews the brewery. Uh, yeah okay no, that, it's, well, so that, that also so helps that, explain how it attenuates to that kind of degree on high abv beers yeah, so the yeast that is used to brew Black Tuesday is the same yeast that is used to make mischief. Huh. And a lot of how you could, and same thing with our, with sorry, I've been, <laughs> been working at the brewery for so long, I still say we, um, but it's the same yeast that is used to brew the anniversary ales, the, uh, the white oak sap base, the wheat wine base. Uh, for a long time, all the brewery's beers were fermented with, a house Belgian strain. Some of them at, at certain points in time, it was co-pitched with a California ale strain. Yeah. Um, but 
a lot of it was that yeast was very interesting. It, you could get a very Belgian-y character out of it if you fermented it at 74 degrees. You could get a Saison-like character out of it. If you pitched it cold, like say 50 or 60 degrees and let it free rise to 85, you get a lot more phenolic. And then if you just let it do its thing at, you know, 65 to 67, you get a relatively mild Belgian-y character that the esters dissipate in barrels. But getting back to it anyway. So yeah, you brew the beer, 26 and a half Play-Doh, pitch right number of yeast, let it ferment out uh, for a day. And then you feed it with dextrose and yeast nutrient boiled in water and 20 minutes of O2 aeration and recirculation. Then 48 hours, you feed it more sugar, more yeast X, more um, oxygen. And then again at 72 hours, after which point you raise the temperature up to make the yeast happy. And then you, uh, you let it, let ferment out, usually having a pump to recirculate it. And yeah, you, we fed it up to, um, to about 37 degrees Plato starting gravity. And it would usually ferment down to three or two degrees Plato. I remember seeing one batch that was 0.9 back in the day. <laughs> so 37 Plato to 0.9. Oh and my that's, gosh. That one was nearly 20% alcohol going into bourbon barrels, which Again, there is some ABV pickup there. Yeah. But it's it's a very different, just, yeah, from a final gravity perspective, it's so different than most other stouts out there. And it gets that, it gets that body. It has body and sweetness from ethanol, like straight up ethanol as a compound. Yeah. So. Now, so because it's a diastatic strain, you did you didn't need to say feed any uh, enzymes into the mix to help with that high ABV fermentation. No, I, I know there are some other brewers who are doing very high uh, ABV beers that are using enzymes, but no, the brewery, um, the brewery for most of my time there, we'd never used any sort of enzyme. Definitely not on Black Tuesday. For a long time, we were for a long time we didn't even use like Biofine or anything like that. Huh. So, or firm cap or anything like that. We just didn't believe in it. Yeah. Um, so. Although, you know, in, in terms of like brewing principles, now that people have been making brewed IPAs with uh, glucoamylase, like yeah. all bets are off, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's no moral but, question about using uh, enzymes yeah. anymore. Yeah, no, but that diastatic strain with the proper yeast management, no, there's no need for enzymes whatsoever. Oh, I should also mention there's some... From what I recall, there is no crystal malt or dextrinous malt of any sort in the Black Tuesday recipe, and the mash temp is 145 huh. Fahrenheit. So there is, we were doing everything possible to make it ferment as much as possible to yeah. get that ABV up. So without giving away too much, but I mean, it's, sure. it's pretty open. Like if you want a very dry beer, you don't put anything in its path, especially right. the diastaticus strain which you'll finally get it that dry it'll just work harder to do it yeah so that's absolutely uh, fascinating and one one other thing i should mention was we've when i was at the brewery i should i should i should mention that um we we occasionally would feed black tuesday or other beers like that uh with with other sugars and that can create some interesting flavor profiles um when I was at the brewery, we used to brew a fall seasonal called autumn maple that had some maple syrup in it. And usually it would be a big campaign for seasonal beer and we'd have leftover drums of maple syrup. 
So what do you do with the leftover drums of maple syrup? Oh, you feed it into the that batch of Black Tuesday that happens to be going right now. And those those barrels always came out, you know, you would taste them and we didn't mark them particularly well, like on the barrel head, like, oh, this was a maple Tuesday or maple fed Black Tuesday batch. And you taste the barrels and be like, oh, there's something different about this. And it's kind of nice. And so started actually doing stuff like that, like feeding an entire batch with maple syrup and seeing what happens and getting some pretty cool flavors out of it. And then using that whole feeding concept to dose fruit into other beers. Um, be it like using a co-ferment of cherries or a co-ferment of apples and stuff like that. And that kind of gets back also into the beer wine hybrids. And is that a feeding step, you know? So there's so many interesting things you can do with fruit during fermentation or different sugar sources to create kind of cool and interesting flavors. If you don't mind the beer drying out quite a bit. Right. Right. Um, how do you still, I mean, how do you kind of accomplish that? Especially when you start talking about fruit, when, um, you know, when you, that fruit sugar ends up re-fermenting out, you can lose a lot of the character of that fruit because so much of our perception of it is driven by that sweetness. You know, how mm. do you offset that? I mean, you add more fruit <laughs> to, to an extent. I mean, as yeah. much for some of the projects that we did, it's adding as much fruit as we're legally allowed to do before it becomes a wine technically. Right. So 50% of, or sorry, 49 and a half percent of fermentable sugars coming from the fruit and the rest coming from malt. So, yeah, yeah. One of the th- you can, you, you can still get it. it. It'll definitely be, yeah. Uh, to your point, it'll definitely be a, a different flavor than a sweet fruit, but right. you can still get a lot of complexities by letting that sugar ferment out and still have a little bit, a little bit to a lot of bit of that fruit's character. Um, at this point, let's go back to the question we were talking about about 50 mm. minutes ago. Uh, <laughs> I mean, since we yeah. since we went off into brewery land, um, let's bring it back to Radiant, uh, you know, here yes, uh, definitely. and talk now, you know, coming coming from, you know, we, we've co- thoroughly covered, you know, your past. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's now talk about Radiant and, uh, you know, as you and Cambria and Jonas, you know, decided to strike out and build a new brewery. Um, what are the, what are the conversations like, and how, you know, how did you, know, did you all have, or how have you all, and how are you continuing now to work through creating a new identity for Radiant that's separate and apart from uh, the brewery that you all have worked for in the past? As far as what we're trying to do at Radiant, we're, as I said earlier in the podcast, we're not trying to be brewery 2.0. We're using what we've learned at the brewery to kind of create our own, informed voice and impression of what we're trying to make um radiant just in the name itself the branding and to an extent the beer we're looking for brightness for defined flavors stylistically we're doing things a bit differently than the brewery um we're not making brewery style beers for the most part uh we're going to be focusing a lot on hoppy beer of all sorts um and lagers as far as production volume um and then obviously everything's a little bit weird and wacky now with COVID, but once we have the ability in California to serve people on premise, we're definitely going to have a little bit more esoteric selections if you come and visit us. Um, 
And then we're also starting a barrel program that is not going to be in any way, shape or form the size of the brewery, but um, we're, we've been, of our first eight batches, two of them are being sent to bourbon barrels. Um, And then otherwise we brewed some IPA. Uh, We're going to brew some West coast IPA as well as hazy IPA. Yeah. We're going to brew some West coast IPA. We have also what we're going to, we've kind of messed up on the first round of cans of putting West coast on a beer where we just wanted to call it IPA. And then we're brewing hazy styles as well. And then we have a lager beer. We did, we've, we're about to release a wit beer as well, which was supposed to be like a draft only thing, but yeah, we're, we're brewing a lot of hot before beer. draft disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're brewing a lot of, and on premise disappeared too. Right. But yeah, we're brewing a lot of hoppy beer. We're brewing a lot of bright, fresh things from clean and crisp lagers, and then putting some beer in barrels that people will see in a year or two. Let's talk about that though. And, and, you know, certainly Southern California has uh, no uh, shortage of West coast IPAs, no shortage of hazy IPAs at this point either. And some of the absolute best creators of, of those beers are in San Diego and, uh, you know, the Metro LA, Orange County area. Um, you know, so you were in a pretty tight competitive market with, you know, folks like Monkish and Green Cheek and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all, society all of mine, right. You yeah. know, like just some, some phenomenally great brewers making amazing beers. Um, how do you create an identity then for radiant that, um, you know, that, that becomes your own, you know, something that people can know you for within the style, you know, obviously, you know, people love IPAs and they're going to continue to drink IPAs. It makes a lot of sense to keep making them, you know, Mm -hmm. but having a viewpoint in the way that you brew them, that's yours, um, you know, helps give, you know, let people taste something and understand, you know, a a unique perspective, how, you know, as you are formulating a brewing idea behind hazy IPAs and, you know, more straight up West coast IPAs, how do you, you know, how do you conceive of that? And what does that mean in terms of like the way you actually build recipes around them? So there's, there's a lot to kind of unpack with that, but let me, I guess, let me give this sort of statement and what I like in IPA and what I see a good amount of our IPAs being granted. We will have some very classically stylistic classical. That's an interesting way of putting it. Right. IPA, some prototypical. No, that's the wrong word. Uh, some just very, very straight up hazy IPAs as well as the bitter defined. I've called more San Diego style, like West coast IPA, but as far as what I like to drink and what I foresee us brewing a decent amount of is when I'm drinking an IPA, I love hop character. I love hop aromas, typically on the fruitier tropical fruit, stone fruit side of things, citrus to an extent. I also personally like highly attenuated beers. And I also don't really like huge levels of bitterness. So for me, the sort of ideal ideal IPA is something that is intensely aromatic in a tropical fruit, stone fruit, citrus direction without a lot of bitterness. And that's on the drier side of things. And surprisingly, there's not too much of that out there, even in California, despite, despite there being 
hugely talented brewers. I mean, Evan Price from Green Cheek lives about a mile and a half from Radiant Beer Company and has already stopped by and uh, supported us by by grabbing some beer. But um, he's he's a, he's all right. He's a phenomenally talented brewer, as is Henry over at Monkish. Um, sure, sure. But but I feel that there is there is a lot of room and. Uh, how can I forget Julian also? Oh, Beachwood. for sure. Julian uh, Trago, there's some, Beachwood. There's some, and let alone San Diego. We can start this incredible. list and it's, yeah. you know, 40 brewers long by the time you get down to San Diego. Yeah. Yes. And they all create amazing beers that I enjoy drinking, but, but I still don't see a lot of what I like out there, which is still really low bitterness, really high hop aromatics, and attenuated um, and your uh you know kind of initial release um you know that that you're putting out next week i you know your west coast ipa has a solid uh you know new zealand hop component to it um you know and that uh you know so uh there, is there some seller maker influence in there as well or uh you know does you just find that that kind of tropical character um you know element is or, or tropical fruit element that comes out of that hop, those hops families uh, adds some of that that you like in those beers. Yeah, um, I. It's funny you mentioned the cellar maker thing. It, it's not an intentional thing, but I've definitely, definitely hearing them talk, and I feel like I haven't seen those guys in a year or two. But uh, they're very interested, and also Henry and all these other brewers that we mentioned are very interested in specific lots of hops and sort of evaluating the differences and seeing what works. And that's kind of what we're as a new brewery that did not have hop contracts, um, but lucky enough to have some friends and connections, you know, trying to figure out what these lots that we have to work with, what they're like, and it's able to uh, get some pretty nice, pretty nice hops that, uh, we source directly from New Zealand. Um, and yeah, one of the first releases, um, we're using some pretty nice, uh, Motueka from a farm called Clayton in New Zealand. And that Motueka is probably the brightest, most fruit forward, uh, Motueka I've smelled in a long time. Um, there have been some lots from freestyle that have been up there as well, but that Motueka was just so a very nice surprise and just very, very bright and not, not resiny, which I really appreciate. Um, and then being able to, to leverage some friends to get, um, <laughs> some hops has been nice, uh, among others. Uh, I don't know if I should be saying who I'm sourcing hops from. Yeah. You <laughs> don't have to, give, you don't have to give those secrets up. Uh. Let, let me put it this way. Um, what, a couple of my buddies, uh, including a good friend of mine in Austin, Texas, um, know how to pick some damn good lots of citra. Yeah, that guy definitely does. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's been great. And then uh, have some buddies in this sort of general Reno, Nevada right. area that have right. some nice mosaic. And yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we can uh, we can do our own research useful. on that. Um, yeah. Another thing that, uh, you know, another approach that you're taking uh, outside of IPA is, uh, you know, launching with a Whitbeard, something that's not hugely popular, or I shouldn't say it's not, you know, I mean, Belgian white is an insanely popular craft beer style. Most of that's wrapped up into a single beer that's sold under this kind of, you know, IRI craft rubric. Um, you know, talk, but it looks, you know, you've got a, 
rather uh, unique approach to it um, with some additional spice components to try to you know, create a, a, you know, a slightly out of the ordinary flavor approach. Talk to me a little bit about uh, that kind of spicing. Uh, yeah, I, there's a whole, whole lot to go into, but, uh, yeah, wit, wit beers. Now we're talking about like subtle spicing, which seems to be like the, uh, counterpoint to, uh, the bold and intense spicing that uh, you've done in the past. Yeah. I mean, wit beers, wit beers, a fun style and I, I actually do enjoy drinking it and you're right there. There's a lot of volume of wit out there, but there's not a lot of, um, lot not a lot of people making it um because why would you try and make something to compete with Algash white which is a near perfect beer um but you can have some fun with it i believe that whip beers have a huge potential for food pairings among other things and playing around with botanicals is and when i say botanicals I'm talking spices and herbs and citrus for the most part you can you can have a lot of um, artistic voice with that and you can sort of the idea behind doing that was, you know, hopefully to have a wit beer that we could keep kind of in rotation that would change botanicals with the season and still hold subtlety and it still be familiar as a wit beer, but, you know, adding a little spin to it. And there are a couple, yeah, there are a couple spices, you know, wit beers are pretty standard with coriander and usually bitter orange peel. And there's a couple other spices in there. And I bet you if someone was to drink the beer, they'd be like, huh, this is, this is, you know, I think there's something more than coriander in there, but not, not really think about it too hard. And I'm pretty sure if I just gave someone the beer, they would not be able to guess what other spices are in there. Um, and that's, that's by design. You don't want something that's in your face of this other strange flavor when you're purchasing a whip beer. But um, to that end, anywhere, where, no. what are you using and uh, what kind of levels and even at those levels to achieve that kind of subtlety, do they add enough to make those ingredients worth adding? Yes. So I definitely believe they do. And in this most recent, the, this first whip beer, I should say that we're releasing, uh, there's a little bit of chamomile in there. And so there's, let me take a step back in the, in this wit, there is obviously bitter orange peel and coriander and then we add a little bit of chamomile which adds this nice sort of florally almost i associate it kind of with honey for some reason like character um that is nice at very low levels um and then there's a little bit and this might be controversial with some people but there's not enough of it to be able to taste the beer and pinpoint it but there's some fennel seed in it uh which i'm I know people can be turned off by anise flavors, but I just think like the aroma of like toasted fennel seed or fennel pollen is absolutely one of the most like captivating flavors you can have in, in say your kitchen when you're cooking. Um, so there's a little bit of uh, fennel seed and there's also a little bit of lemon peel in addition to the, in addition to the orange, but it's all done subtly to where if you were like to sit down and be writing notes and trying to dissect the beer, you might be able to pull out maybe chamomile out of it, but if you're just drinking the beer, you're going to notice that there's some nuance to it, but you're not going to be able to really say, oh, that's there's fennel seed in that. Oh, there's chamomile in that. And I also just 
just now thought of an ingredient that is a major pain in the ass to work with. <laughs> what is it? What is it? Uh, dehydrated cream cheese powder. Oh my gosh. That sounds disgusting. Yeah. Uh, it's, it makes cheesecake beers. Yeah. Yep. It makes and, uh, cheesecake beers. <laughs> to, to, to and it doesn't back. like, yeah, it doesn't like to integrate very well into liquid. Um, how do you make it work? That's people at the brewery would, say it doesn't work but flavor wise it does just integrating it into the beer is a pain in the ass it clumps and doesn't like to separate out and some of it floats some of it sinks some of it stays on top um but yeah dehydrated or it's defatted freeze-dried cream cheese powder and yeah you can use it to make cream or uh, cheesecake inspired beers okay or don't that's yeah, or don't. Probably <laughs> probably don't unless you want to have a headache. Um, and a headache from adding it, not from drinking it. Right, right. Um, looking forward for Radiant, um, what are a couple of the most exciting or things that you're most excited about uh, being able to brew um, over the next few months? Are there, What are the ideas that you've been uh, hanging on to that uh, you just want to flex a little bit on that, uh, as you may not have had a chance to brew in the past? Yeah, I mean, really, just overall for Radiant, I'm hoping and praying and excited for the prospect of having people on site to consume beers again, um, because a lot of the more, I want to say more fun, but the more interesting beers and beverages, I should say, that where it can really show show some unique perspective outside of just hoppy beers and lagers and barrel aged beers are projects that I would want to be draft only. That would be smaller batches that we would just have here at our tasting room. And, you know, I'm not going to do this crazy, crazy beer where we have to, you know, put 15 barrels of it into cans and try and sell it. I'd rather it just be a draft experience. So I'm excited about the opportunity to have people back on site hopefully once people get vaccinated and we're over this. Um, so there, there are some very esoteric beers that I'm looking forward to making, but that is entirely dependent on being able to serve them to people directly here at radiant. Yeah. But there, but there are quite a few fun ideas. Um, and then some ideas where, uh, so here's a fun one for you. Well, I mean, this is not the thing I'm most excited about, but, having spent a lot of my professional brewing career at the brewery, one thing we were not allowed to do and never did was kettle sours. Ah. So, and before I was at the brewery, kettle sours were not a thing. Right. So uh, I've never, I've brewed a ton of sour beer in my day, but I've never made a kettle sour. So I'm thinking about having some fun, um, sort of some fun, uh, I have some ideas. Let me put it that way. I have some fun, fun treatments to do. Um, but that, that's not the, that's not the thing I should say that I'm most excited about, but I thought it's interesting that someone who's been in the industry for 10 years, making hundreds of different beers a year has never made a kettle sour. And the brewery so. that releases beers canned in that similar kind of category is just not using a kettle sour process. Or, you know, it's all exactly. Like, yeah. yeah. Everything made out of the brewery to was actually soured in 
in tank or in barrel. Right. right. Using live lactobacillus in packaging or pediococcus or any host of other uh, microbes. Sure. Sure. Well, normally we would, we had end up uh, the podcast with a question about what success looks like for you. And since radiant is just getting started now and you're just kind of figuring out identity and just starting to sell beer to the public, it's very premature to ask that kind of question. Um, but in your, you know, near to near term dreams, what, uh, what does radiant look like two years from now? Uh, well, hopefully a lot of happy people on the, out on the patio in this beautiful California weather, drinking some incredible beer. And ideally we would like to also be creating some, a little bit of wine. And, uh, I, Jonas, uh, my partner is also very keen on, uh, distilling. So maybe some of that, I think for us, we, we want to be. Uh, us as a team um we obviously want to have people here enjoying themselves and sending out our our message our beer our our voice um and then yeah hopefully in a year or two we have uh we have a bunch of very happy employees some happy customers maybe a satellite tasting room or two and we're making incredible beer um some fun fun wine and maybe maybe getting our distilling game going um yeah that's that's my vision and hope for success but um our first our first uh actual beer sale is uh tomorrow so it's a little premature to say what success looks like um but yeah i i i think we all envision having having happy customers happy and very talented employees hopefully a couple more locations and just making incredible beverages of all sorts. Well, I've had plenty of beers that you've uh, made over the last number of years, and I can't wait to uh, try some of these super fresh, brand new Radiant beers uh, that you all have just packaged and are just starting to sell. Uh, we certainly normally don't talk to you know brewers on their uh, <laughs> the week before they open a brewery, yep. but uh, the reputation of all three of you all uh, you know uh, definitely uh, speaks for itself. And uh, we've got high hopes for Radiant and uh, and what you guys brew in the future. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication. Crisp Scottish Pale Ale is the workhorse of many a brewery. Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB. And check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out how to enter to win a keg Viking. Of course, if you'd like to support this very podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. Click on that subscribe button, or if you're a professional brewer, check out our all-access subscriptions at brewingindustryguide.com. Andrew Bell, thanks for joining me on the podcast. If people want to learn more about Radiant, uh, where do they find you? Yeah, so the best place is our website, which is radiantbeer.com. We have a newsletter, which people who are subscribed to might get a little bit of a sneak peek on certain releases. And then on social media, I believe Instagram is our biggest uh, our biggest place where we interact with people, and it's Radiant Beer Co. So Radiant Beer Co. on Instagram. Can't wait to try the beers. Excited. Congratulations on uh, on this new move for both you, or for all you, uh, Jonas, Cambria, 
and yourself. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us, Jamie. Very excited to be sending beer out into the world. And thanks for having us. Fantastic. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.